0: To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss.
1: Hello and welcome to Babbage on Economist Radio. I'm Kenneth Kukie, a senior editor at The Economist. And coming up on today's show, should Google and Facebook report to government regulators on how they police the news content?
0: I think the platform's must be beginning to accept
1: that governments will want to try to exert some regulatory authority. We speak to Dame Frances Concross about her recent review. And the inventors of GPS have just won the top award in engineering. One of the fathers of the technology tells us how the satellite he sent to space over 40 years ago
2: is still in use today. We still have one of the satellites online still that was launched in 1975, and, and the Clark is 22 years old. This stuff works, and it's like the wine. Atomic clocks the longer you have them in space, the better they get. Truly, really. In
1: 2018, Dame Frances Cross was asked by the British government to conduct a review into the sustainability of high-quality journalism, and the report was released this week. Ms. Carncross is well placed for the task, having been a journalist for several decades at a small British newsweekly, known as The Economist, in which she had been a senior editor. The report offers many recommendations, including how to oversee the large technology platforms better. To discuss this, I'm joined by Francis in the studio. Hello, Francis. Hello, it's great to be back at The Economist. Francis, what's the problem with the web platforms and media? The problem is that they do a lot of things better,
0: and the result is that the newspapers, the publishers, are making much less money than they used to do. They do two things better. They do advertising better. It's easier to find what you want if you search for it on Google than if you look it up in the back pages of your local paper. And it's also easier to move from reading one publication to another if you skip along on your smartphone than it is if you have to go and buy several of them in order to do so, for several newspapers in order to do so. So for both those reasons, both as a, as a reader and as an advertiser, there
1: are big advantages in, in what the platforms can do. Now those things sound like really great things for consumers. Why are they problems? They're
0: problems because the consumers are not paying and the advertisers are not paying. If you're going to continue to produce news and news of high quality – Somebody's got to foot the bill.
1: So your recommendations in the review touch upon the platforms Facebook and Google. Explain what you say about them and how you came to that conclusion.
0: Well that's a very big question. There are three recommendations that I think they particularly will affect them. One is I heard from a lot of publishers that they felt the deal they got with Facebook and Google was not fair. And they wanted me to pursue the sort of scheme that uh, the Germans tried and the Spanish tried a few years ago of getting them to pay for the copy that they showed. I thought a lot about this. I felt that it was a commercial transaction in which it was rather difficult to get government to intervene directly. I also remembered that what had happened in Germany and what had happened in Spain was not very good for papers and for publishers. So i suggested another way forward, which is that the platforms should draw up codes of conduct of how they will manage their relationship with publishers. And they'll do this under the guidance or under the eye of a regulator. The publishers can talk to the regulator and say, this is what we'd like and this is why we'd like it, but they can't intervene in the whole process of negotiation. And then the regulator will sit them down in a locked room and tell them to get on with deciding how they want to go forward. And there are lots of things that and I'm joking about the locked room, of course, but of course. metaphorically locked. And I'll hope that they'll come up with something. So that's one suggestion. A second one is to say that the the market for online advertising is pretty opaque. Everyone says that. Some people think it's uh, used the word murky. I'm not sure how murky it is, but I think it would be a very good thing if the competition and markets authority in Britain had a good look at it. In Australia, the commission, which has just been looking at these questions, is going to do the same thing. So I think by the end of that, we'll have some sense of what is murky and what isn't. And the third recommendation is the one that I think is going to be, in some ways, most difficult to get right. And it's about news quality i notice that the platforms are already much more concerned to try to make sure that they aren't showing disinformation or misinformation or fake news to their readers and what i'd like to see is for them to report on the efforts that they're making to a regulator to explain what they're trying to do and why and how far they can measure the success of the measures that they're taking so This is not telling them to do anything except measure and report. And I think that that would be very helpful. and might just build trust in the platforms, or it might not. But it would, in a sense, give them an incentive to think about what they're doing and how they're setting about it. I think the platforms must be beginning to accept that governments will want to try to exert some regulatory authority. And the fact that Google was even willing to contemplate moving into China suggests that it must have thought about this pretty hard and have been willing to accept a certain measure of regulation.
1: Critics might look at your review and pose the question Is she trying to protect media or is she trying to protect a certain business model from the 20th century around media? How do you respond to that criticism? I don't think either of those things are
0: true. I'm aware that this is a changing technology and its functions are changing. And we don't know now where it will have gone to in five years' time. What we've got to protect is not the particular technology or the particular way of doing things. What we have to protect are the most desirable and and publicly important outcomes and make sure that those are still available. It's the protection of what I've called public interest journalism that really matters rather than the form that it takes or or where it goes to.
1: Now, I'm mindful of the fact that you're not foreign to a newsroom. You were a senior editor at The Economist. And I wonder what your former self would say to the solutions that you've put forward. In your report, the term intervention comes up 56 times. The Economist is very wary of intervention. It is wary of intervention, and that's
0: why... I hope that my former self would read the report all the way through rather than just look at the conclusions. Um, In the days when I was Britain editor of The Economist, I would certainly have expected the journalist writing on that subject to have gone the whole way through and to have understood what the case for intervention was. And the case is built around public interest news, about the kinds of news that are important for supporting a democratic government. Not the government, but the, the whole structure of democracy in a country. This is what the press have traditionally done. They've spoken truth to power. Thomas Jefferson understood this. He said, if if I had to choose between having a government and a newspaper, I would have a newspaper. So news publishing really is a central part of making a democracy work. If the market can't sustain news gathering, then you have a choice. You either allow it to fizzle away or you look for ways to intervene and you try to make them as hands-off as possible, as long-distance as possible. But you've got to find some way of keeping it going until you see if something else is going to emerge that will continue to do the job.
1: Francis, thank you very much. Thank you, Ken. You're listening to Babbage from The Economist. If you like our podcast, consider listening to all of them, including the new one that recently launched, The Intelligence, available every weekday and hosted by Jason Palmer. Our next guest also has concerns about social networks and their regulation. This is somewhat surprising, given that he was an investor in Facebook and a one-time advisor to the founder, Mark Zuckerberg. Roger McNamee's new book is called Zucked, Waking Up to the Facebook Catastrophe, he sat down with Gaddy Epstein, the economist's media editor, to explain why he thought that the social platform's flaws outweigh its benefits to society.
3: Roger, thanks for being here. My pleasure. Your book is a fascinating look at what is probably the world's most important company right now. Tell me why you wrote it. I've been a technology investor and optimist for since 1982. I was lucky enough to meet Mark Zuckerberg when the company was two years old in 2006. I gave him some good advice, became one of his mentors, spent three years as an insider at the company, brought Sheryl Sandberg in. I wind up becoming basically a cheerleader, loving this company and being very proud of it until 2016 when I saw things going on over the course of that year, both in an electoral sense, in a civil rights sense, and a financial sense that were just totally not fitting my world view of what Facebook should be doing. And I didn't understand it. I went to Mark and Cheryl and said, there's something wrong here. And thinking they were the victims. They were polite. They did not, however, acknowledge that there were systemic issues. They didn't follow through on them. Let's be clear here. You wrote actually a pretty detailed memo to them, an email. It basically was talking about the business model and the algorithms, essentially giving bad actors the ability to harm innocent people. It created a lot of attention, and somebody had to write a book to amplify the signal. I started in March of 2018, and uh, three weeks later, Cambridge Analytica happened, and all of a sudden, what was a interesting conversation nationally became a global firestorm, and right. the book publisher suddenly went, hmm, this is more interesting than what we realized, and I looked at it and went, this is way scarier than I realized, and... As we sit here today, uh, what worries you most about Facebook, and do you think that what worries you most about Facebook can be solved? My worry now is way more than Facebook, that it's really the business model that Facebook and Google have for all of their operations. So that includes Instagram, that includes WhatsApp, and includes YouTube, that that model is really based on massive surveillance, on this manipulative psychological stuff that basically first captures people's attention and then puts them in this weakened state where they can get addicted and therefore manipulated by others. And what scares me the most is we're now going into the world of smart devices, you know, Alexa-powered appliances and cars and things. We're going into a world of artificial intelligence. And it's analogous in The Wizard of Oz to going from Kansas to Oz. You're going from sepia to full Technicolor. All of the problems that we saw in 2016 will be magnified so intensely. The surveillance of Alexa-based devices is terrifying. And in AI, the absence of discipline and responsibility that the vendors are taking is resulting in all of the implicit bias of the human world being brought into black boxes you can't appeal. And it's all being applied to things that Take away the fundamental elements of humanity. You know, white collar jobs. It's taking away. Uh, you know what we think with filter bubbles, and it's going after the things we enjoy and buy with recommendation engines. And instead of doing what technology should do, which is to empower us and to make us more capable, with what Steve Jobs used to call bicycles for the mind. So, what can be done here? Is it a matter of persuading leaders in Silicon Valley, leaders of Facebook, Alphabet? Google, YouTube, uh, to change? Is it a matter of forcing change upon them? I'm part of a small team that have spent the last two years trying to persuade the leaders of the Valley to make the change from within. I'm no longer optimistic about our probability of success there. I do believe that we can be optimistic, though, because the humans formerly known as users have way more power than they realize. They have the power to withdraw a portion or all of their attention from these platforms. There are substitutes for a lot of activities. You don't need to do school groups on Facebook. There are a lot of other ways to organize groups. You could share photographs with family on email. So there are ways to withdraw a portion of your attention that would be really meaningful. You don't have to engage in political arguments. But also, as individuals, we have tremendous political power. I think there's great awareness around the world. Certainly in the EU and the United Kingdom, uh, they've taken a leadership position in, in standing up for the rights of, of their citizens. And in the U.S., there's now a very rapidly growing awareness that this is an important thing. And each of us can bring pressure to bear on, our, on the civil servants who, who represent us and on the elected officials who represent us to, to take care of, of, of these problems. What would be the most effective, like, let's say, one, two, three bits of regulation? So I think we need to recognize that there are problems related to the mental health of the users. There are problems related to democracy, privacy, and the economy. The simplest, easiest technique to start with uh, in Europe would be antitrust. In the U.S., it's going to take a little more work, but antitrust is really important because the problem of these companies is that they're focused on uh, their needs, not the user's needs. And we need to get back to products that focus on the user needs, which requires creating space for competitors to develop. Right now, they are just blocking all the sunlight, so no startups can compete with them. So use antitrust to do that. And that's super, super important. Uh, The second thing is we need to have rights of data ownership, the reside with the person whose data is involved. And really importantly, they have to have the ability to control how things are used. And there need to be certain rules that there are some kinds of usage that are just plain inappropriate all the time. And, you know, for example, I think in political context, you don't want micro-targeting of political ads the way it's been done because that's too manipulative. Um, Those are the two places that I would start. And the third one that I would add is protections for children, that this technology is causing all kinds of developmental issues. We ran an experiment thinking that exposing kids to technology early was going to be a good thing. We now have a lot of data that says that, generally speaking, that's not correct. And you want to radically restrict not only how much usage they get, but where. You, for example, except for special needs kids, you don't want devices in classrooms. You want kids learning how to pay attention. You want kids learning to have social interaction. And so the kids piece is another place that I would really emphasize.
1: That was Roger McNamee talking to The Economist media editor, Gaddy Epstein. Finally... This year's £1 million Queen Elizabeth's Engineering Prize has been won by four individuals who played key roles in developing GPS, the Global Positioning System. One of this year's four winners is Hugo Fruhoff, the chief engineer of the satellites that were put into space and the guy who created the clock, because GPS is all based on time. And he's here with me in the studio. Hugo, congratulations on your success. Thank you very much. So how is it that GPS... Was created and what was your contribution?
2: How much time you got? <laughs> exactly. Uh, my boss, uh, Richard Swartz, who was also uh, won this award, uh, he kind of uh, made my career. He said, Hugo uh, went to be chief engineer, and, uh, and I said, Well, I never built a big satellite before. We were playing around with small spy satellites at the time. And he says, You can do it. And I, I think I froze, my knees shook, and I went to work. And so we designed an extremely capable satellite. The function of the satellite and the basic structure has not changed since 1970.
1: Now, when you began working on the GPS satellites, were you
2: allowed to tell others that you were doing? Yes, the GPS was actually uh, completely open. We, we even published the accuracy of the military signal.
1: Did the success of the GPS satellites surprise you?
2: Yes, Bill Clinton was president. He began to realize the potential... Uh, market for, for this sort of thing. And he wrote a presidential directive, and you guys are going to stop degrading this commercial signal. And then while you were sleeping, it went from 150 meters to about, about a meter or two. I remember that. And the car market and the cell phones actually blew a, a GPS into the you know in, into the world, into the universe. And today we know what it can do.
1: And GPS is still being improved.
2: Actually, uh, yes and no. Without uh, overstating the case, uh, we had had no need to change the signal structure since 1973. Now I don't know if anybody can beat that record. What the improvement is coming from is the atomic clocks, which is sort of my bag. I was the chief engineer on the satellite as well as the atomic clock, but my contribution is probably more on the clock side. So the improvement is coming in two ways. One is the atomic clocks uh, working a factor of 100 more accurate than in the 1980s. And that is just refining physics. Physics isn't like a computer gets old next year, you know, it's, you, can be, you kind of refine physics and it, the laws don't change. And the military's making some improvements, uh, which I know, uh, you know, want to get into, but uh, essentially there's 32 satellites coming up and, uh, and the other main improvement beside the clock is the longevity. You know, these satellites are now designed for 15-year life. Even when uh, we started with the original satellites, we still have one of the satellites online still that was uh, launched in 1975, and and the atomic clock is 22 years old. This stuff works, and it's like the wine. Atomic clocks, the longer you have them in space, the better they get. Truly, really. What's next?
1: If you were a 25-year-old engineer thinking about the future, where would you put your talents to think about the great next great engineering grand challenge?
2: Okay, I may be too old uh, to uh, give you a good answer, but to me, uh, GPS is just beginning. Uh, it is the main platform for all your autonomous vehicles, All of, I like to call it autonomous platform rather than driverless cars, because it's gonna be boats, it's already boats, it's the, case that it's the packages on the boat that know where they're gonna go. Uh, you're talking aircraft, uh, I think I'd rather have the new systems land the aircraft in a fog rather than the pilots not being totally sure. they got inertial systems, but then they never won't give up the stick. I know what the AI will bring, and that is you're not going to be able to ever operate a moving vehicle as good as uh, the, the final versions of AI, and GPS is the main sensor. Hugo, thank you so much for joining us. It's a pleasure. My favorite magazine. Thank you. Mm-hmm.
1: And that's all for this edition of Babbage. Don't forget to pick up the latest issue of The Economist or find us online at economist.com. I'm Kenneth Couquier. In London, this is The Economist.
0: Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. From a local business to a global corporation... Partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024.